What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. I am very, very, very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. We are here coming to you from Philadelphia, week I don't know what of self-isolation, shelter in place, trying to stop the spread of COVID-19. And I'll be honest with you, There's some dark days in all of this. There really are. And Laurel and I were talking about a way that we could orient the podcast towards joy. We wanted to make sure that while we are still going to be philosophizing very deeply and scrutinizing intellectually the pop culture pieces that we want to examine, we wanted to focus on media that brought joy to us. And we've come up with, which I hope to be a series of episodes where we are going to go back to things we had once loved while we were young. And we're going to give them the midnight myth treatment. We're going to ask about the history, mythology, and philosophy about some things that we're very nostalgic for. So we started debating what could those be in this new series So we came up with a few criteria, and from a certain extent, the criteria is arbitrary, but we're inventing this as we go along. So you're listening to our podcast. Hopefully you agree. We wanted to do things that we loved when we were young, things that were not animated, or at least not mostly animated. So we wanted to do live action, and we wanted to do cinema, because at the end of this, we wanted to debate whether this series of episodes, whether the movies we discuss are or are not perfect movies through the Midnight Myth gauntlet that we've been having a lot of fun with. So we're going to be going back to our childhood over the next five weeks. Each week, we're going to be picking a movie, a movie that meant something to one of us, if not both of us. And we're going to be examining the history, mythology, and philosophy. We're doing this because we want to have fun. We want to spread joy, but we still want to have amazing intellectual and nerdy conversations about media. And we still want to apply the midnight myth critical analysis lens that all of you have come to know and love. And that's why you listen to us. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce the subject. And if you've been following us on social media, you know this already, and hopefully you all are, we are going to tackle back to the future. 
Yes. Uh, what a great intro there, Derek. That was wonderful. I love that you said we were trying to orient the podcast towards joy. And that's something I want to do in my daily life with everything, orient towards joy. And that's exactly what we're doing with this series of podcasts. We are pulling the things that make us happy, that make us feel warm, that make us feel comforted, that make us feel loved, and trying to understand why. Why do they make us feel that way? And using the Midnight Myth lens in order to extract that reasoning. Um, so I'm really excited to begin this series of episodes. We're super stoked about some of the movies we have picked out. And I, I yeah, I, this is just such a great series for us to do. I'm really excited. Yeah, so we've got five. This is one. Um, so Back to the Future is the start. And we're, we were not going to lie. So Back to the Future just became available on Netflix. And that was kind of the genesis of this idea. Like, hey, Back to the Future's here. We've been talking about doing a series of joyful episodes. Uh, we should start with Back to the Future. Yeah, you have to start with Back to the Future. Yeah, and so if you have a Netflix account and if it's been a while since you've seen Back to the Future, go ahead and watch it. I'm going to assume everybody here has seen Back to the Future. Everybody listening has seen Back to the Future. It is a juggernaut of a movie. It has spawned sequels, uh, trilogies, video games, comic books, cartoons, you name it. Back to the Future is a phenomenon of my lifetime. And I think it's going to be interesting applying the Midnight Myth lens to it and kind of discussing some of the ideas. We have a lot of content to get through, so I don't want to waste any more time in introduction but I do know that there are some news and plugs that we need to get through. So Laurel, do your thing. Yeah. Well, the first thing that you should know is if you're here and you like listening to The Midnight Myth uh, and you have not heard, we did a wonderful team up with our friend M over at Verbal Diorama on the John Wick trilogy. That was such a joy to record and such a joy to listen back to because it was an incredible conversation that we had over there with M. Uh, we looked at all three of those fantastic action movies and talked about everything under the sun from the history and mythology within to the incredible history and legacy of making those movies. Uh, so definitely get over to Verbal Diorama to listen. And if you are not listening to Verbal Diorama, what are you doing with your life? Uh, if you're looking for joy and movies, that is the podcast to go to. So we definitely recommend everything that M puts out. And uh, we hope that you enjoy that episode. Um, if you wanted to get in touch with us, hit us up on social media. We are at The Midnight Myth on Twitter and at Midnight Myth Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find out lots more about us on our website, midnightmyth.com. That's where you'll find a link to our merch store and our Patreon if you wanted to support us monetarily. Uh, and if you just want to support us, but you don't have any money to give right now, the best thing you can do for the podcast is leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. So please consider taking five minutes of your day to hit five stars and write a few words about why you love us. Lovely, lovely, lovely. And I just want to echo, I love listening to the Verbal Diorama podcast. It was so much fun doing John Wick. And just what an amazing, like, three movies to spend with you and M discussing and loved every second of that. It was such a great project. We're already discussing having M come back to ours. Um, she did the Labyrinth episode, so we're in talks with doing something amazing with M in the future. Yeah, just lots of love there. Anyway, on with the Midnight Myth. Yeah. 
Let's do, do you want to do a brief recap? I mean, we've all seen this movie, so let's just keep it brief. Yeah, Is very that cool quick recap, that's fine. So this movie features a high school guitar playing skateboarder Marty McFly going to his good friend Doc Brown, a rogue, uh, broke, penniless um, scientist's house before going to school trying to play his guitar. The amp explodes. There's a phone call. We all know it. We hear the song Power of Love by Huey Lewis in the news. The story unfolds where Marty McFly wants to go out on a long weekend with his uh, girlfriend, and he's lying to his family about it and wants to borrow the family car, which we see gets totaled. And in that total, we get introduced to a character named Biff, who is the supervisor of his father, and his father is just a total loser pushover. And Biff totaled the car because presumably he was driving drunk. Marty is upset about this, but then gets reminded that his mentor and friend, Doc Brown, wants him to meet in a mall parking lot around 1 a.m. Marty gets there to find out that Doc has configured a DeLorean into a time-traveling machine utilizing a device called the Flux Capacitor. And to fuel this machine, he has stolen plutonium from Libyan terrorists who have they themselves stolen the plutonium and hired Doc to build them a nuclear bomb. Things seem to go well. The time machine is working flawlessly and Doc Brown is ready to go on his adventure into the future. 20 years, the year being 1985, that would be to the year 2015 when the Libyan terrorists come murder Doc and Marty jumps into the time machine to escape and accidentally transports himself to the year 1955, in which he meets his parents as teenagers and accidentally interrupts their chance romance, hence altering the future timeline and threatening Marty's very existence. Marty is very much a fish out of the water in this 1950s. A kid from 1985 doesn't really fit in, and he does his best to convince Doc Brown to help him get the time machine back in working order so they could send him back to the future. The only problem being, since Marty has messed up the timeline, he has to make sure that his parents actually fall in love so Marty can be born. The only way to fuel the time machine is to harness the power of plutonium, and the second best thing to that is a bolt of lightning. Luckily, Marty knows exactly when and where a bolt of lightning will strike, as in the future, the clock tower in the center square was struck by a bolt of lightning in the year 1955, and hence hasn't operated since, noting the exact date and time that the bolt of lightning strikes. Doc Brown rigs a uh, way to harness the power of the lightning and to put it into the DeLorean. And Marty McFly has to then reunite his parents on their course to love at the Enchantment Under the Sea, not Fish Under the Sea dance, as Doc likes to call it, the Rhythmic Teenage Ritual. All things go well. Marty ends up helping his parents connect. He ends up giving and installing a sense of confidence his father never has, encouraging his father to stand up to the really mean bully and also attempted rapist in Biff. And this changes the course of George McFly, Marty's father's life, in which he grows a sense of self-confidence. Marty comes back to the future to find his entire circumstances have changed. His father is successful. His two siblings are successful. Marty himself owns this amazing uh, truck that he coveted at the beginning. And he's ready to go on this date with Jennifer. When at the very end, Doc Brown shows up and says, you and Jennifer have to come to the future. There's a problem with your kids to be continued. Roads, where we're going, we don't need 
Roads. What an amazing recap. Thank you for getting all of that detail in there. I don't know how you do it, Derek. This it was just supposed comes to, to you in like a moment of revelation. I channel the movie. It's supposed to be brief and it never is. It never is, but well done. Yeah. If you guys don't like my recap, those listening and want me to stop doing them, I'll stop doing them, but I have fun with them. Yeah. Well, so that's the recap. I'll tell you that the Back to the Future, I saw it as a kid. It, um, I learned a few things from the movie. One, I learned the word damn and shit. <laughs> that was like your introduction to cursing. Absolutely. And I heard them and I'd probably heard them before. But that was the first time I heard them in a context where I'm like, it wasn't like, oh, there's a bad word. I'm like, they're saying this in the movie. They're saying this in the movie. So it introduced me to profanity. And then it also introduced me to time travel narratives. It was the first story where time travel was the main plot device that I ever saw. And since I've loved stories about time travel, it's been one thing that I've always sought out for huge Dr. Who fans. One of my favorite Star Trek um, movies is the one where they go back in time to save the whales. I absolutely love Terminator. I gobble up time travel. I think it's such an amazing story mechanic and time travel is certainly the genre, the sci-fi genre of this movie. This is a movie about what happens if you can travel in time? What are some of the unintended consequences of it? I think this whole movie is dealing with those unintended consequences. I think that's one of the main themes of it. You have good intentions, but things go wrong. So, you know, Doc wants to build a time machine. He needs plutonium. His intentions are good, but he steals it from terrorists, and that's bad. Marty's just trying to get away from the terrorists and he goes back in time. He tries to stop his father from getting hit by a car, but accidentally disrupts, disrupts the timeline and threatens his own existence. This whole movie is about what happens when you have good intentions, but things go awry. And that really isn't until the movie culminates when the character George decides to take charge of his life, where he starts to own the consequences of his actions where we see this kind of correcting of the timeline and creating this new, more prosperous future for all the McFlies. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I love that it really is Marty trying to do the right thing at every turn that leads the timeline more and more astray. Uh, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, this is really at the top of a lot of people's lists when it comes to iconic time travel fiction, iconic time travel movies. There's almost nothing more iconic than the DeLorean as the time machine. Um, and there's just so much about it's immensely quotable. There is not a single wasted moment in this movie. Every tiny detail that's introduced at the beginning, like save the clock tower, becomes an immensely important plot point later and is always deeply tied to the characters and their personal stakes. Uh, it's just a movie that holds up so well. And we were just watching it the other night, and it was like we were seeing it for the first time. You laugh at all the jokes, you feel for all the characters. It's just really incredible. And also the digital effects that are in this movie yeah. have aged incredibly well. They look really good. So much that I look to Laurel and I'm like, please look this up, but did Industrial Light Magic do these digital effects? And yes, they did. Absolutely. Anytime you're looking at a movie that's old and you're like, wow, these effects have aged well, it's almost always ILM that has done them. And if you don't know who Industrial Light and Magic ILM is, it's the digital effects studio that George Lucas created post-Star Wars to create digital effects. And their work is still bar none. They are still hugely influential in the industry. 
And, uh, you know, you know what's interesting, too, about going back? I just cut off my own thought there. Uh, go ahead. I could have sworn. I would have gone to my grave saying that this was a Steven Spielberg-directed movie. No, it's Robert Zemeckis. I completely forgot that it was not Spielberg a Spielberg movie. Was de- well, he, he was involved, Executive though, wasn't producer. He? Yeah, okay, yeah, he executive produced it. Yeah, it does have the feeling of a, a like peak Steven Spielberg, but it's that perfect Robert Zemeckis feeling, too. Absolutely. So, like, I completely had misremembered who directed this movie. Um, yeah, I could go on all day, all night about the things that I love about this movie. And it really is phenomenal. I think anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s and saw it, it was amazingly um, inspiring. It made me want to skateboard. It gave me confidence when I felt like I was, I was more like George than I was like Marty. And it made me want to be a little more like Marty and I just absolutely adore this movie. Yeah, me too. So let's do a little analysis. Let's jump into analysis. I would love to start, if it's all right with you, uh, by going a little bit into the iconic character of Dr. Emmett Brown. And the way I'd like to get into that is by exploring the archetype that he uh, descends from, and that's the mad scientist. Let's do it. I love it. So when you hear mad scientist, Doc Brown might even be the first example to come to your mind because he visually and, you know, character wise, he just perfectly fits the sort of universal conception of what that is. He's got the crazy white hair, the Coke bottle glasses, the lab coat. He's ranting and raving about things you don't understand, but you just know that he knows what's going on and he's going to have a brilliant revelation. But the prototype for this motif in fiction is, of course, Dr. Victor Frankenstein from Mary Shelley's classic 19th century novel. Uh, He was followed by the title character in H.G. Wells's The Island of Dr. Moreau. And Dr. Moreau is the guy who sews together like animal parts and human parts and creates these monstrous hybrids. Uh, And then there's Dr. Jekyll and the list goes on. There's tons of these mad scientists, especially in 19th century literature, but continuing through to today. Uh, The cinematic tradition, which created the iconic visual representation, uh, is best attributed to Fritz Lang's Metropolis and a character named Rotvang, who is bringing to life a robot. Uh, So there's a key similarity between all of these examples that I've already brought in, and that's that all of these mad scientists challenge orthodoxies. They challenge the conventions of science and they challenge societal taboos. So Victor Frankenstein reanimating the dead, that's absolutely crossing a line of what is considered a natural science. It's uh, usurping these traditionally godlike powers, the giving of life. It's almost assuming that you are a god or that you can be like a god. Uh, In the literary and cinematic tradition, there's also a a sort of a clear bend toward villainy. There's often a sinister aspect to these mad scientist characters. So Frankenstein, that example, is definitely a sympathetic character, but he has undoubtedly done a terrible thing and unleashed a monster on the world. And Dr. Moreau is creating monstrosities without any regard for the consequences. Um, The mad scientist usually becomes a cautionary tale about hubris, Uh, He's not unlike Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. And 
to me, that says that the mad scientist has always spoken volumes about the human relationship to science and the discovery of the natural world. So Frankenstein is written at a time when galvanism is becoming popular, which is a, a sort of process of running electrical currents through dead biological tissue. And that fear created this great science fiction horror. It gave voice to fears about new technology in a rapidly changing world. And usually the mad scientist does that. What I'm interested in with Doc Brown is how he's not really giving voice to a fear, at least the way that I read him. He's not showing this clear bend toward villainy that the uh, literary tradition has. He is unquestionably a benevolent mad scientist. And there certainly are other examples of benevolent mad scientists, but he's so clearly well-intentioned and good and good-hearted. Uh, so I'm really interested in how he departs from this trope and shows the, um, the really positive qualities of madness in science. Yeah, that's a really interesting um, points that you bring up there because he visually does appear like a mad scientist, disheveled, his eyes bulging, his hair all over the place. He creates and meddles in technology which are bending the laws of accepted physics. He doesn't work at a university. He uses his family fortune in the mansion that they have and he squanders all of it for his crazy inventions that no one thinks will work. He is totally okay in treating with, you know, Libyan terrorists in order to get the materials that he needs. And he's okay with lying to get those materials that he needs as well. So there's some sort of dubious moral character to him on one hand. On the other hand, we see him in particular, his younger self um, sacrificing everything to help someone return back to where they belong to guide Marty in a way that no one else could to be able to say, you've messed with your timeline. We've got to correct these things. And he's able to um, very selflessly, very altruistically put Marty's needs first to a certain extent. He has vindication knowing that he will eventually invent something that works and that really does bring him a sense of, of personal joy and the idea that he gets a glimpse into his own future, the fact that he gets to keep his hair. But for the most part, he cares a lot about Marty and he really wants to help Marty. And you get this sense in 1985 that this, this is a real legitimate friendship between this scientist and this you know young man. Yeah, which I love that they don't take any time to explain. I'm like, it's they're just friends, you know? Why not? <laughs> I love it. And, he, and you know what? There's something really very cool about that. And, like, Marty seems like the most unnatural sidekick to yeah, Doc. Yeah. He doesn't particularly seem like a science kid. He wants to play rock and roll music and hang out with pretty girls and drive big trucks and skateboard around town. Like, he doesn't seem like the typical geek who would search out that mentor, but there is a legitimate friendship there. And I think that becomes, comes from doc really enjoying talking about science, sharing science and being very passionate about what he does him at his core, wanting to be both inventor and teacher. 
Yeah, yeah, I, that's incredibly well said. And I think, uh, you know, at his heart, there is a sort of melding of multiple archetypes here. So we have the like, the very explicit um, surface level mad scientist that's so much a part of how he presents, but he's also very similar to another archetype we've discussed on the podcast before at length, and that's the magician. Uh, you know, like any great wizard, like Merlin or Dumbledore or Gandalf, he is a mentor to the younger generation. He is a window into a sacred world of like incredible discoveries beyond what you could possibly imagine. And he's there to usher you across the threshold. He doesn't go with Marty in the DeLorean in this movie until the very end. And we're not talking about the sequels here. I actually haven't seen the sequels. I'm sorry to say that. But he never goes with Marty in the DeLorean in this movie. Marty has to go on his own with the knowledge that Doc has imparted to him. And that is key to the magician archetype, which is that they usher you across a threshold with the boon, with the sacred knowledge, with you know the thing that you need to be master of two worlds, and they get you there so that you can do it on your own. And what is the modern magician, if not someone so advanced in science and technology that that appears magical to us. Yeah, yeah. And even when Doc is confronted with his own invention 30 years in the past, it appears magical to him. So like, what is the magician if not the mad scientist? It's also important to note that the mad scientist trope also represents anxieties, fears, and antagonism yeah. towards science itself. Yeah. And the idea that coming up with uh, empirical ways to understand the natural world, to experiment in the natural world, and then to create uh, laboratory experiments that could develop technologies that could augment and change said natural world is something that didn't happen easily, calmly, or simply in human history. As soon as there was a revival of studying what was first natural philosophy we now call science, there were also huge backlashes to try to snuff it out yeah. and stop it. We're talking about an intellectual development that came out of medieval um, thinking, medieval religious thinking in particular, that said that the truth was discovered about the universe and that truth was the church and anything that diverge, diverges from it even slightly is a threat and was stamped out and fought, excommunicated, sometimes even violently. Look what happened to Galileo. Yeah, and sometimes even very painfully. So as science started to challenge, as natural philosophers started to challenge the cosmology as written by the church, there was a natural anxiety that we might be usurping God. We might be yeah, yeah. replacing God. We might be replacing religion with science. And that means we'll be reanimating corpses. That means we'll be doing these really like immoral and ungodly things in our like attempt to become God. And what we see with Doc is a reconcile like reconciling that past and saying, no, yeah, yes, he is a mad scientist. But no, he's not trying to be God. This isn't about his ego. This isn't about him destroying. This is about him going back to what that role should be, which is the role of the magician. Yeah, it's the pure pursuit of knowledge, and it clearly brings him personal fulfillment. Absolutely, and sharing that knowledge yeah. with Marty and being able to help Marty and be to be able to help this other character get from point A 
to point nineteen fifty five. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing I want to say about the uh, the the mad scientist archetype and how it intersects with uh, Doc is that I think he's pulling more. I think this character pulls more. Uh, or less from Victor Frankenstein and more from the four men that he has above his mantelpiece. And that's Newton, Franklin, Edison, and Einstein. Um, he clearly idolizes these great minds of modern history and modern science uh, who all have incredibly important discoveries to their names. And what I think is really fascinating about comparing him to those characters or to those historical figures is that a lot of them have a little bit of folklore attached to those discoveries too. So Newton, we have the uh, the story of the apple falling from the tree, and that's how he came up with the theory of gravity. And we have uh, Benjamin Franklin with the kite and the key, which you can debate how uh, incredibly truthful that was or how many elements of it are folkloric. But they describe this kind of revelatory creativity of science that I feel is so... Um, antithetical to how we usually think of science. Uh, when we say, yeah, it's science, so it's proven, we're thinking about science just as a systematic and regimented uh, you know, form where it has no room for creativity. And the truth is, the greatest revelations and the greatest discoveries have a little bit of madness in them, have a little bit of a spark of creativity. Let me go out into a thunderstorm and put a key on a kite and see if it gets struck by lightning. How crazy is that? Or like, why does that apple fall that way from the tree? There is an incredible level of artistry that's involved in so much of science and so much room for creativity that Doc really exemplifies, especially because he had the vision of the flux capacitor when he hit his head on the sink, which just feels like it's part of that tradition of, uh, of these scientific revelations. You know, I love that you bring that up. I, one thing that I was really struck with rewatching this is how much the uh, way that Doc channels the lightning to fuel the flux capacitor to send Marty back to the future really reminded me of Benjamin Franklin yeah, and the key yeah. and the kite and the idea of like harnessing electricity, like, and just doing a little bit of research for this. It's insane that before Benjamin Franklin, the dominant presumed theory about why lightning existed was that God was angry at something and hence struck it with a bolt of lightning. That's what most people thought lightning was. During the Enlightenment. And Benjamin Franklin had a theory that it was electricity and went out and proved it and then invented the lightning rod. And the reason he got to uh, challenging that basic assumption was that he noticed that church buildings in towns tended to be struck the most. If it were God being mad... Why is it that it is striking church buildings? And Benjamin Franklin was also the first to discover a positive and negative charge to lightning and understanding how lightning can get grounded. And once he realized that electricity or that part of that lightning was electricity, he was able to invent a device to stop lightning from damaging homes and buildings. And I just love that little anecdote when we think of that experiment of how they channeled lightning, they use the tower as a lightning rod, channel the electricity down a wire into another lightning rod that then fuels the flux capacitor. It's great. It's just amazing. It's definitely a callback to Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really is. Um, let's move on a little bit. Can we talk 
a little bit about time travel itself. Do you really think that's relevant to Back to the Future? Yes. Okay, yeah, I'll allow it. So for the most part, and I'm going to couch this conversation with, I am not a physicist. I'm not even a scientist. I'm a guy that likes to read history books and philosophy books and talk about movies on the internet. So there could be a lot that I'm going to, um, for those out there that are scientists, probably stumble through. Um, but So time travel as a narrative has been around for a little bit, but there was a growth of time travel narratives after Einstein published the theory of relativity in 1905, in which Einstein postulated that time itself was relative. The like simplest way that I've heard smarter people than me describe this is that imagine that there's this thing called space and things exist in it. People can move in it. Um, imagine it as a blanket. Anything that exists sits on that blanket. So if a planet, for example, exists in space, just put a ball on that planet, on that blanket, and there's a curve. That curve is gravity, right? And then gravity can bend time itself so that depending where you on that on that curve, where you are in space, will depend upon how you perceive time. Did that make any sense? I think so. Yeah, yeah. So time is relative to your position in space, all right? And Einstein proved mathematically that if you were traveling at the speed of light, time would slow down for you. So if I went at the speed of light for five Earth years and came back to Earth after traveling, I would not have aged five years. I would have aged less, the exact amount. I don't know because I'm not a mathematician or an astrophysicist. But time is relative to your position in space. Where you are, how fast you're moving through space determines your experience of time, which has led a lot of people to believe that traveling through time is one both like kind of literally happening. So if you go out into space and come back, time has changed for you. They've had they've done experiments with clocks, with astronauts going into space and coming back, and the clocks do not run the same. So the astronaut that went to space did not age as fast by seconds, but still did not age as fast as the clocks there. So from a certain respect, we're all traveling through time. But the idea of moving through time from point A to point B is a little fuzzy. Most scientists think it's not possible. There are a few theories out there, such as creating wormholes, no one knows how to do it. No one can do it, but they're mathematically at least kind of feasible. There's some other really interesting ones about folding large amounts of like, if you could take the mass 10 times of the sun and put it in a beam and like roll it and then travel around that beam, you could theoretically travel through time. I read about I that. Do that. Yeah. It's insane, which also sounds impossible, which leads a lot of people to think that time travel is impossible. But nevertheless, after Einstein, people started thinking differently about time. That's what I'm really trying to get at here. Hence, they were thinking differently about time. People were writing time-traveling narratives, time-traveling stories. And uh, this one French person, whose name I am blanking on right now, came up with what's called the grandfather paradox. Now, I would submit that back to the future, from a time-travel mechanic standpoint, is dealing with the grandfather paradox. 
And here's how this paradox goes. If you don't know what a paradox is, it's two things that are simultaneously true that also can't be true. So the grandfather paradox works like this. Imagine you could travel back in time. You travel back in time and you kill your grandfather. Your grandfather before your grandfather gets married and has children. So that would mean that your grandfather couldn't give birth to your parent, which means your parent couldn't give birth to you. You do not exist anymore. But you had to have existed because you went back in time to kill your grandfather. So the idea is how can we reconcile this paradox? If time travel is possible and you go back to the past and you change something that changes the future, but that thing that you changed meant that you could or couldn't exist in the future, how could you possibly do this? It creates a paradox. Make sense? Yeah. What do we see in Back to the Future? Marty goes back in time. Instead of his father being hit by his grandfather's car, he saves his father, he gets hit, and hence his teenage mother, instead of falling in love with uh, the father, falls in love with Marty, and we literally see him start to disappear because he had never existed. He's working out this exact paradox. So how do we reconcile this paradox um, in terms of how do we think about philosophically? How do logicians and scientists reconcile it? And then how does the movie reconcile it? So reconciliation of the paradox one. You cannot go back in time and kill your grandfather. It's impossible. Even though you can go back in time in this model, something would stop you from being able to kill your grandfather because what has happened has always happened. So you've always gone back in time and you've never killed him. So if you go back in time, you can't actually change time. Correct. Circumstances will conspire to keep you from changing it. There's some sort of a force that would stop you from doing it. That force... And this is where this model starts to break down because what is that force? Right. How does it know? How does it change it? Like, how does it interact? Is it physical? Is it metaphysical? Is it transcendent in nature? Um, you know, what is this force? And that's where that kind of breaks down. But we see the movie kind of flirt with it when uh, Marty's mother kisses Marty and is immediately turned off after spending her entire movie kind of attracted to him and wanting to pursue him sexually. When she finally kisses her future son, she's just like, oh, that's gross. I'm so turned off. Yeah, I think that force that would stop you from changing time would be called, in the context of Back to the Future, your density. <laughs> yes. Or your destiny. <laughs> yes. Um, the other example of this is that when you travel back in time, and you do successfully kill your grandfather, you haven't in fact actually traveled back in time. What you've done by traveling back in time is you traveled to a different universe. In that different universe, your grandfather didn't exist because you have murdered your grandfather. So in that different universe, the mother doesn't fall in love with George because you saved George. You've created a whole other reality. The reality that you came from did exist. And whether... You go back in time creates the reality or whether that reality existed. And when you traveled in time, instead of traveling in time, you just traveled to that reality is not the point. Interesting philosophical question for a different paradoxical debate. But the idea is instead of traveling through time, you travel to or create a different reality in which you kill your grandfather. But that same reality that you lived in exists in back to the future. 
kind of plays with this as well. Because when Marty finally gets to the future, what do we see he is in? A complete and different reality. His father's not a weakling. His mother isn't drinking too much. His uh, older brother and sister are successful and happy. Biff is a coward who is, um, you know, waxing George's car. And Marty actually owns this beautiful two by four. He's in a different reality. Marty's memories haven't changed. Marty's conception of the reality he came from hasn't changed, but the reality itself has changed, which suggests this is now a parallel universe. Marty hasn't traveled through time. Marty has traveled to a different universe. Whew. I mean, yeah, it can't be the first one because we know massive changes have uh, have occurred in between 1955 and 1985. We've got a completely different outcome for this family and their relationships to each other. So we know that we can't be looking at a model where time is fixed, which means that the time travel in Back to the Future uh, and that universe is just that much more volatile. Everything you do is going to have an incredible consequence on the future. Yep. Then the other um, way that you reconcile it, and this one's going to be a little harder to describe via a podcast, but you go back in time, you kill your grandfather. Your grandfather dies before he has children. So your parent didn't exist. You don't exist. That absolutely happens. But since you didn't exist ever, you never went back in time to kill your grandfather which means your grandfather exists, which means your parent exists, which means you exist, which means you then go back in time and kill your grandfather. And this is a way where think of it as a loop. Think of it as a never-ending cascading series of events that are trapped in a perpetual and permanent cycle, which will always and continually repeat. Yeah, it's two mirrors facing each other. It is a, a like, it, and it's a, a deterministic series of events in which nobody is free, they're all trapped in them, and they're all doomed to repeat and relive them over and over again and again. This one doesn't seem to apply much to Back to the Future in any real tangible way. Because none of these characters seem to be stuck in a loop. It doesn't seem to be repeating over and over. It seems like all of the individuals in this movie are free independent agents willing to act on their own accord. And it seems like those choices have real meaningful consequences that can change the trajectory of everyone's lives. So I don't think this one really pertains. But to me, it is the most logically consistent answer to the grandfather paradox that if you could do this, you would create a loop in which you'd be constantly living and reliving and living and reliving. It's just like quarantine. It's just like <laughs> COVID-19 quarantine. The other way to look at this paradox as it relates to Back to the Future is to say, well, Back to the Future is just not really logically consistent and doesn't really address this paradox in, in a meaningful way. That'd be one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is to say, hey, time travel is freaking impossible. So who cares? The movie is a ton of fun <laughs> yeah. and we all love and enjoy it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with looking at it that way. But the interesting thing, when you start to, when you start to ask, does, what does this mean? What does any of it mean? Well, if you study logic, 
you're doing this just simply to do it, right? You're doing it because logical proofs can hopefully lead to other logical proofs, and we can maybe get slowly and slowly closer to the human condition. The other way to look at it is a um, conversation between free will versus determinism. The idea is, can we make choices, and do those choices matter, and do those choices affect other choices, versus determinism, versus density, I'm sorry, destiny. Destiny. You know, do are, is everything that's fated to happen going to happen, and there's no way that you can get around it or change it? And in that respect, Back to the Future is rather hopeful, because it says, no, you know what, maybe this is a parallel universe, maybe it's not, but what it certainly says is, you can be inspired by a brave friend to be braver. You can be inspired by a brilliant scientist to do amazing great acts. You can make a choice, that choice can matter, and it can change the trajectory for a life for the better or for the worse. You can end up, George McFly, can. there can be two different versions of him, right? There can be the version of him that's sniveling, unsuccessful, and wretched, and that he has three kind of dweeby kids, and only one of them has some promise because he plays the guitar. The other two kind of seem like total losers. Or you could have George McFly that goes playing tennis with his wife. And that writes pulp science fiction novels. Who's a successful novelist yeah. with three awesome kids with like a beautiful wife that has a beautiful home. And a lot of that can come to this, the individual choices that we make. Now, I don't know whether we live in a free world or a deterministic world. I don't know if we're all just trapped in these perpetual loops that appear to be nothing but suffering and misery where we're killing our grandfather to not exist, just to exist, just to kill our grandfather over and over again. But I will say that Back to the Future is goddamn optimistic about the human condition. It's so optimistic. It's telling us that, no, we can be better. And it's showing us this is how we can be better. Remember that bully that you walk by who was hurting someone? You could have done something. And if you did, you'd be a better person. Remember that experiment that you thought you wanted to do, but you're like, ah, it was going to cost too much money. No, go out and do that experiment. Remember that song that you and your friends wrote back in the day and that you were too afraid to play for anyone? Play that song for someone. You know, like go out and just really attack life with as much joy and positivity as you can and as much confidence as you can. And you can become, you know, a George McFly in Universe B, where he's really cool, not Universe A, where he's a total dweeb. Yeah, and it and it gets to that from a time travel premise, which I think is really interesting, that it uses the science fiction and the time travel to get to that outlook on life and to get to those relationships between the characters. You know, there's two pieces of time travel fiction that I think this is clearly living in the uh, the legacy of. Uh, and the first one is A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain, um, which was written in 1889. So before Einstein's theory of relativity, but what that story really is all about 
is the fish out of water narrative. So the main character is a Civil War soldier who gets bonked on the head and wakes up in the Dark Ages. And he shows up with all of this knowledge of modern technology and science. So everybody thinks he's a magician, thinks he's a wizard. Uh, and that's very similar to Marty McFly arriving in 1955 and being Calvin Klein and knowing about Darth Vader and the planet Vulcan and having all of this uh, knowledge of what happens in Hill Valley in the future and being kind of the coolest guy around because he has all of that knowledge. Uh, so I think it definitely pulls from that kind of story, the like, what would happen if you were displaced in time? How would you react to being, you know, back in a different different era when people think differently? And then the other piece of fiction that it pulls from is Ray Bradbury's A Sound of Thunder, um, which was written in the 1950s or 1960s, I don't remember right now, but that's kind of the original butterfly effect story. It takes place in um, 2055, so not far from now, hopefully we get there, but um, at this point in human history, time travel is like a commodity, so you can go on time safaris and hunt big game in the Cretaceous period, as long as the dinosaurs were about to die already. But then this guy steps on a butterfly and it leads to this causal chain of events where America somehow elects a fascist president of the United States. So that would never happen. Yeah. So just don't go back in time and step on any butterflies. So it's mixing together those two kind of premises of what would you do if you're displaced in time with what happens if you change something in the past. But what it's all doing, what it's all serving is, you know, I think this is a time travel movie that's not about time travel. I think this is a movie that uses time travel to be about the power of love, to be about Huey Lewis in the news, to be about characters and human relationships. Every time the rules of time travel come into play in the script, it's in a way that reveals character or that is personal stakes or that allows these characters to reveal themselves and become closer to one another. So I think that's kind of the best way you can use time travel in a story, right? Is to make it meaningful to how human beings connect to each other and how they try to make themselves better people. Yeah, I totally agree that it is a movie where time travel is the premise, but what this is about is what would a kid from 1985 look like and act like and be like in 1955 and the sort of fun interesting, nostalgic-fueled lens that we have about that time in America and letting some, some someone with a more modern sensibility live in there. And then lastly, about two people and whether they do or do not fall in love, meaning life and death, and making sure that they fall in love so that you know a character like Marty can exist. It's about these people coming together Overcoming things like bullying, sexual assault, um, you know, and all of the the struggles that they have and really finally learning to come together and love each other. And that being the most cosmically important event, more important, arguably, than a DeLorean that can travel in time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It always uses those big complex ideas to tell a very small story, honestly. This is about a couple of people and how they relate to each other. It's about four people, really, four or five people tops. I do think there is a element of this movie that doesn't age so well. Yeah. And that's in the 1950s romanticism. 
And this is something that exists in America where we look back at that time right after World War II as one of the greatest times in America, the baby boomer generation. The war was over. America was prosperous. And this movie kind of glosses over some major, major things Um, and in some ways that don't really age so well. In particular, I'd like to draw on how it paints the picture of the town square in 1985 versus how it paints the picture of time of the town square in 1955. In 1955, it's beautifully clean. There's no pollution. There are no minorities. There's no um, graffiti. The movie theater is a movie theater, not a sex, you know, peep show theater. The, um, the record shop is playing these oldies. And every car that pulls into the Texaco has a whole team of people yeah. to tend to the car in this very idyllic, perfect sense. Then when Marty gets back to the town square in 1985, it's decrepit. There's a homeless person. There's pollution. There's graffiti. And it really like that kind of struck me as so this is really condemning modern America in many ways, shape and form compared to 1950s America and 1950s America had a ton of problems. You know, it kind of jokingly laughs at civil rights. Yeah. It plays pretty fast and loose with a lot of racial stereotypes. Um, but in particular with, uh, with the stereotypes of African Americans, um, and then there's the iconic scene, which is a great scene of Marty getting up on stage at the rhythmic ceremonial ritual and, playing Johnny B. Good for the first time and everybody thinking, oh my God, this is the next big thing. Let's get Chuck Berry on the phone so he can discover that new sound he's been looking for. And while I doubt this was the intention, it has the effect of, uh, you know, glossing over an entire musical tradition that came out of the African-American blues and jazz uh, movements and the birth of rock and roll, which was very much in the black communities and says a white guy went back in time and did it. And that's like, it's not great in 2020. No, that doesn't age well. Yeah. Um, And you could argue that in that time, that probably wasn't even cool then. Yeah. In particular, if you were trying to reach a diverse audience with this movie, and it kind of clearly wasn't. It was kind of it was kind of geared towards white people and about white people. So you get you get that sense looking at it from a contemporary lens, not as a child in the like eighties and nineties when I first saw it. But the other thing that kind of struck me as odd in this one was, you know, Biff's attempted rape. It's really dark. I, I, you know, that's always a moment of this movie that I, I don't forget about it because I always know it's there, but you're just along for the ride so much and you're having such a great time. And then it takes this really dark turn and becomes this attempted sexual assault. That's yeah, it's pretty dark. Yeah. I mean, Marty is sitting in the car with his future mom And Biff and his goons pull Marty out of the car, lock him in the trunk, and Biff goes in and is just like, I'm going to have my way with her. Yeah. And, like, he doesn't end up raping her because George, this was his hero moment where he comes and knocks him out and becomes a confident man rather than the dweeb that he was. But it's still like, whoa, that's, that's really intense. And, like, presumably in this world... If George McFly doesn't come by there, Marty's stuck in the trunk. Biff just kind of gets away with this. Right, right. You know, like does this and that's kind of that. 
And it really makes me think, though, on one hand, it has this heavy nostalgic lens for 1950s America. On the other hand, from a contemporary adult, college-educated, you know, pseudo-intellectual perspective, I go back and look at that and, like, there's a lot of warts over this nostalgia. Yeah. And we see to date this is still considered, in particular in America by some, as, like, the greatest time for America, the greatest time to be American. And this movie, even in its attempt to sort of prop up that nostalgia lens, shows how really kind of messed up that is to begin with. That was a time in America. And this is the historian in me. That was a time. No time is greater or worse. You could objectively say there's more prosperity in this time versus less in that time. There's a higher degree of access to clean water in this time and less in that time. There are things that you can say, but to say that one time is like, that was the greatest time to be America, that this movie is kind of saying that at the same time, that great time to be America also had this horrible, you know, racial inequities. It has a bully, a teenage bully who's comfortable raping a girl. It had all of these like, you know, like horrible warts all over it. Reminds me that when looking back at the time in the past, if you want to understand the past, the worst lens to have is nostalgia. Yeah, you have to look at everything. And I think this movie, you know, doesn't necessarily get to a point where it looks at everything, but it does introduce some complexities, like you just said. It just shows us, um, you know, a couple of the things that were not perfect about this time and says, okay, yeah, now things are a little bit more progressive and we should celebrate that. We should arc towards that. Um, so I think that's a really good, a really good point. And while it may seem that from a certain perspective, we're being hard on this movie and judging it first, it's nostalgia lens. If we're going to do this experiment where Laurel and I are going to go back and look at movies from our youth that we're nostalgic for, it is our job to make sure that we uncover the truth about that nostalgia, that we understand what made it felt feel good, what makes it feel good why it hits that nostalgia brains, but understand that when you bring the lens of history, mythology, and philosophy to something, you do have to uncover and unpack aspects of that that are problematic. So it's not to pick on Back to the Future. I adore and love this movie, but we've learned some things. I've personally learned some things since from when I've seen that movie. So I have to bring those things I learned to the movie in how we debate it, not to tear it down, but to celebrate it. Yeah. We have to try and go into this undertaking without the rose tinted glasses. And that's going to be harder and harder as we get into these movies that mean so much to us and that meant so much to us as young people, because it's really hard to uncouple yourself from your, your past. It's really hard to uncouple yourself from the things that formed you. And if this movie shows us anything, it says that we, we can do that. We can go back. We can revisit the past and we can do it with the knowledge of the future. We can bring our innovation, we can bring our creativity, we can bring our confidence from the future, and we can rewrite our past toward a better future. I don't know if that metaphor holds up necessarily, but I feel like uh, it's going to be part of this endeavor as we go back to these childhood favorites. And from a certain perspective, bringing in some of the racial inequalities and bringing in the gender gap inequalities that we see in this movie, adding them in there at least recognizes by 
the, the, the people that created this movie, that they knew that that existed then. Really the part to me that I think is um, most problematically nostalgic is the way it does paint this idyllic broad lens picture of the town yeah. versus the dirty picture in the future that says to me like, okay, so there's a part of this movie that's saying it was better back then, even though racism was a bigger problem. Um, even though sexism was a bigger problem and sexual assault was more, you know, more easy to get away with for lack of a better term, it was still better back then. It's like, no, Right, yeah. No. No, no it was not. <laughs> it wasn't better back then. It was just then. Yeah. You know, it was just then with problems and complexities and ugliness and horribleness and the things that we have learned are really great and the problems that we have are still our problems. And yeah, anyway, I love Back to the Future. So do I. Um, I hope that you have enjoyed this journey with us through time and through time travel. Uh, it's been a lot of fun for both of us. Just to close on a bit of a bittersweet note, watching this movie, you kind of can't not think about what happened to Michael J. Fox later in life. He was, of course, uh, diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's disease, um, but has proven to be an incredible advocate for research. And the Michael J. Fox Foundation is committed to Parkinson's research and finding, uh, you know, ways to cope. Uh, and I found out recently that they, uh, the foundation launched a new podcast to help people with Parkinson's disease navigate the COVID-19 epidemic. Uh, so you can learn more about the podcasts and resources um, about the foundation uh, at michaeljfox.org. Wonderful. All right. Do you have any final thoughts on Back to the Future? Just, I don't know how we're going to harness 1.21 gigawatts. This was our first of our five series on nostalgic movies. I had a lot of fun. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.